The year is A.D. 29. Spring is in the air. Preparations are being made to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, a dark cloud is overshadowing what would be an otherwise happy celebration. Jesus has been arrested, tried, and now sentenced to death on the cross. His followers have scattered, fearing retribution from the local authorities. Their hopes have been dashed by a tragedy they didn't see coming. Just a few hours before the crucifixion, they had been gathered together celebrating. And now they're hiding, they're grieving, they're struggling with what to do next. And then, 72 hours later, 72 hours after his death, three days, three nights, Jesus rises from the grave, rises from the dead. The ground couldn't hold him, hell couldn't hold him. And he appeared to those men and women who had followed him. And in those appearances, over the next 40 days, he transformed these despairing, discouraged, and doubting believers into men and women of contentment, of courage, and of conviction. And I believe... That as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and see how the resurrection helped these early Christians gain hope in the aftermath of a tragedy, that we too can gain a perspective on recovering our hope. That we too can take the resurrection of Jesus Christ and share it with others so that they too can have hope. There are many believers... Not just unbelievers in the world. Yes, the world's full of people who are despairing, discouraged, and doubting. But so many believers today, maybe even some of you listening to this message, have gone and, and had a, a time of despair. You've been discouraged about this. You're doubting this, that, and what's going on. My friends, you need to come to the resurrection. You need to come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let that give you hope and let that resurrection hope transform you, give you contentment, give you courage, and give you conviction in the day in which we live. We're going to look at the crucifixion tragedy and the resurrection hope this morning. The crucifixion tragedy and the resurrection hope. Because as we look at the tragedy of the crucifixion as our backdrop, it's going to inform us as to how different believers responded. Now I have to be honest with you, none of these believers responded biblically. They responded naturally. Now that's not to say they were sinful. But it shows where their faith was and where their faith wasn't. And to be honest, it's times of tragedy that God uses in the life of believers to inform them 
as to where they're at in their faith. And I believe that's one thing that God is doing right now. He's bringing believers, not just here in the United States, worldwide. He's brought us a quote-unquote tragedy. And many believers are in crisis. Just like the women at the tomb, just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and just like the 11 apostles in the upper room. Now we can take comfort in that because we're in good company. Some of you are despairing. Some of you are discouraged. Some of you may even be doubting. But I believe, by God's grace, that when we focus on the resurrected Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and focus on Him, He can take our despair and give us contentment. He can take our discouragement and give us courage. And He can take our doubts and give us convictions. And so with the crucifixion tragedy as our backdrop, I'm going to introduce three crises. A crisis of despair. A crisis of discouragement. And a crisis of doubt. But then we're going to see how the resurrection hope transforms. So let's take our Bibles first of all to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to move to verses 11 to 18. And first of all, this morning we're going to consider a crisis of despair. A crisis of despair. We're looking at the women at the tomb. And maybe this is where you're at. Or maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe, you know, by God's grace, man, God's given you that contentment. He's given you that courage. He's given you that conviction. And praise Jesus for that. Praise Him. That he's given you that. So if you're sitting here listening to this message and you're saying, well, hey, listen, that's not me. I'm not going through that crisis. Give him the glory. But take what we're going to cover today and use it for someone who is struggling, who is going through a crisis. Because one of the best things we have next to prayer is the word of God. And we need to be using the word of God now more than ever. Not just with the unsaved world, but even with believers to encourage one another. John chapter 20 verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So here we are. It's the first day of the week. Now again, we have to understand the Jewish context that this is any time after 6 p.m. Jewish reckoning of time is not midnight to midnight, but 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So Saturday evening, 6 p.m., it's dark. Jesus is resurrected. They come to the tomb. There's a whole list of reasons why. We're not going to cover those today. That'll be for another time. Suffice to say, they come. It, the Bible's very clear. It was dawning. The Greek word there means heading into the first day of the week. First day of the week, what we would consider Sunday, begins at 6.01 p.m. So it could be any time between then and 6 a.m. because the Bible tells us here it's still dark. So here comes Mary Magdalene. Now, we're going to take together all four gospel narratives here to build the, what's happening. Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the, the uh, mother of Jesus, her sister, the mother of James and John, uh, uh, Salome, uh, and a few other women, were all coming to prepare and take care of the body of Jesus. Remember, he had been taken off the cross after 3 p.m., hastily buried before 6 p.m., okay? All bodies had to be buried before sunset, uh, especially with the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread about to begin. So he had been hastily buried and so forth. So they're coming to finish whatever needed to be done. They're bringing the spices and such. They get there, and as they're coming, they're like, well, how are we going to move this stone? Maybe the Roman guards will help us move it. We don't know, but how are we going to... Well, they get there, they find the Roman guards gone. Now we know... What happened to those guards? There was a great earthquake, the stone rolled away, the angels appeared, and they passed out as if they were dead men. Well, now they, they, they vacated the scene. They don't want no parts of whatever's going on. They get there, and they look in, and the body's gone. So immediately, they find Peter and John, tell Peter and John, and the other disciples, Peter and John, they run to the tomb to find out what's happened, and the tomb's empty. They don't know what to do. We're going to get to those guys in a moment. Mary Magdalene and the other women come back to the tomb after telling Peter and John. Peter and John are there and have done, seen it and looked at it and marveled and yet don't believe yet. And this is when the narrative here in John picks up where in verse 11, they're weeping. Now, John focuses solely on Mary Magdalene, but the other gospel accounts tell us that the other women were there as well. It wasn't just Mary who was grabbing onto him. Uh, the other women were too. But they're all sitting there crying because why? They're despairing. Where have they taken our Lord? Where's his body? Now, that tells you right there, they are filled with despair. Did grave robbers come in the middle of the night and take him? Did the cemetery uh, gardener take his body? What's happened? Where is he at? Now that tells us, friends, that these women 
even though they had been with Jesus for the better part of three years, even though Jesus had repeatedly told them he was going to die and be resurrected. Listen, he had told them this almost from the beginning. Remember the narrative in John? Listen, you destroyed the temple, and in three days and three nights I will raise it up again. They thought he was talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. Remember a little bit later in Matthew chapter 12, he said, listen, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the belly of the ground three days and three nights. So even though they had the scriptures, even though they knew the prophecies of the Old Testament, even though they had the words of Jesus, they were not expecting the resurrection. And so when they see the stone rolled away, they assume the worst, someone has taken Jesus' body. And isn't that exactly what we all do when we are going through a tragedy? There's that moment in time when we assume the worst. We jump to the worst case scenario. And then we begin to despair. Oh my, what is going to happen? And we, go, we jump to the worst case scenario. As John 20 verse 2 says, She went to the disciples and she said, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now we don't know who the they is. She doesn't even say who the they is. Here we go with the conspiracy theories. Notice right away, she doesn't think back to anything that she's learned in the Bible. She doesn't sit and go back to what Jesus himself has said. She immediately goes from her despair and jumps to this conspiracy theory to say, oh, wait a minute, they've taken his body. Don't you love it? They. The ambiguous they. Who's they? Nobody ever seems to know who they is. She could have been talking about the people taking care of the cemetery. They could have been talking about uh, the Roman guards, uh, the uh, Pilate, Herod, any number of people, they didn't know. But right away, they jumped to this conclusion. They are despairing, despondent, and don't turn to God for answers. You know, and it's so very true today. You know, on one hand, these women and the disciples lacked critical thinking. They lacked critical thinking. Instead of thinking critically, that is, well, what did Jesus say? What does the Bible say? They became cynical and suspicious. And I see this today. I see this, I hear this from so many Christians today, and, and it's very concerning to me some of the things that I've heard from believers. It's all a farce. It's time to revolt. The 5G cell towers caused it. Chinese plot, socialist plot, deep state plot. That's another one. Uh, China deflated the numbers. America inflated the numbers. Gates owns this company. Trump owns that company. 
Oh, they're, they're going to implant microchips. This is, they're going to introduce the mark of the beast. So on and so forth. This ought to be embarrassing to us as believers. Christians, in times of tragedy, we should have the answers. We should be given hope. Not becoming cynical and suspicious and jumping on these ridiculous bandwagons of out-and-out nonsense. But again, that's exactly what the women did. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. Now, as I said, Mary and the women come back to the tomb and they're sitting there weeping. And the angels appear, ladies, what is going on? Why are you weeping? Now, the word weeping that's used here is loud, uncontrollable wailing. You know, this this isn't just a little boo-hoo here, folks. Oh, this isn't sniffles. This is sobbing. This is out-and-out loud, wailing, sobbing, gnashing of teeth. You know, anybody in a mile radius would have heard them. She wanted to find Jesus. But she wasn't looking for the living Lord and Savior. She was trying to find his corpse. Somebody's stolen the body. Can you imagine? In her state of confusion, she's looking in the tomb. She sees this one angel at the head, the other angel at the feet of where the body had been. And then when she turns around and she sees this guy she doesn't recognize, so how couldn't she recognize him? Well, one, she was probably sobbing and crying so much she couldn't see straight. Two, I believe Jesus didn't reveal himself to her. We're going to see that in a moment here with the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, that he kept them from seeing who he was until he revealed himself to them. And I believe that's what Jesus does even now. When we're going through a time of crisis or tragedy, people are saying, where's God in this? Where's God in this? I'm hearing believers saying, where's God in this? Listen, God's still there. God's on the throne. God knew about it long before it happened. He knew about it in eternity past. He knew exactly what was going to happen in 2020. And it's not that God has remained silent. It's not that God isn't doing anything. But God is hiding himself from believers until believers get to the place of looking to him, and then he's going to reveal things. Now, they ask the women, women, why are you weeping? And then Jesus repeats the same question in John 20, verse 15. Why are you weeping? Well, they're weeping out of despair. They're weeping because they're trying to process these sorrows. But the problem is they're not processing them biblically or critically. They're not processing them in light of the resurrection. They're processing them in light of the tragedy of the crucifixion. Those angels and Christ himself wanted Mary, the women, and us to think about the implication of that question. Why are you despairing? Why are you weeping? Yes, watching the crucifixion was horrific. And yes, we have to work through the emotional shock of such a tragedy. Even the tragedies we're dealing with today. 
But Mary's weeping from sorrow because the tomb was empty, whereas the fact should have caused her to weep for joy. First she was despairing from the shock of the tragedy of the crucifixion, but now because she wanted to finish embalming the body of Jesus, she's thinking, if I only knew where they laid him, I could finish embalming his body. She didn't understand the big picture. And the big picture included the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so often we're just like Mary. We despair because we don't understand the big picture of what God is doing. We despair because God isn't working the way we think He needs to work. But you know, from God's perspective, we're all asking the wrong questions. We need to start processing our disappointments in light of the risen Savior's love and care for us. You know, I don't understand God's sovereign perspective. No more than any of us do. But when I look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm reminded that, guess what? He's at the right hand of the throne of God, daily interceding on our behalf. That means God is still on the throne. Twice she says, they've taken away my Lord. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, that is an ironic complaint. If he's the Lord... No one could take him anywhere without his consent. They've taken away my Lord. That's ridiculous. But how ridiculous are we? You know, we often suffer despair because we forget that God is sovereign. We forget that no one can thwart his eternal purpose. Listen, I understand, I know, I realize that horrible atrocities take place. And I don't want to deny for a moment the emotional struggle of working through the aftermath of those atrocities. Often we will not understand in our lifetime why God allowed certain sufferings to take place. But there is no comfort apart from the fact of God's sovereignty and Jesus' resurrection. And if those facts are true, then someday we can trust this promise that God will work all things together for good and His glory. For those who love Him and are called by Him. Certainly we grieve when we lose a loved one. We feel that loss every day for the rest of our lives. I'm not saying it's wrong to weep over such losses. Even Jesus in John 16 and verse 20 wept over the loss of Lazarus, knowing full well he was going to raise him from the dead. But the Bible says, though, although we grieve, and it's all right to grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Mary Magdalene's grieving as a woman who's got no hope. You can grieve, but don't grieve as if you've got no hope. The hope that Jesus is risen and that He's coming again to take us to be with Him and with those who, other believers who have died in Him ought to be comfort to us even in the midst of our tears. And while we may never understand why God is allowing people to suffer, why God allows people to die, we can know that the risen Savior has a greater purpose and that He sympathizes with us. We see His sympathy so often in the book of John. We're told in Hebrews that He is a sympathizing high priest. So whatever your loss, whatever my loss, we've had to process our despair in light of the sure fact that Jesus is risen, His promises are true, and that gives us hope in our sorrow. Perhaps Jesus is asking you the same question He asked the women, why are you weeping? Well, that's a dumb question, Lord. Don't you see what's going on? The Lord says, wait a minute. The tomb is empty because I have risen. Now why are you weeping? 
So there's a crisis of despair. Secondly, the crucifixion tragedy produced a crisis of discouragement. A crisis of discouragement. I want to look at the Emmaus Road disciples in Luke 24, verse 13 to 27, and then verses 30 to 31. Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? They stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Literally in the Greek it says the, the third day has now passed. It's now the fourth day. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. Now, what's going on here is they're, they're talking to Jesus, totally unaware that it's Jesus. I love the sarcasm. Yo, buddy, where have you been? Don't you know what's going on? And now, can you imagine what they must have thought after Jesus revealed themselves? Oh, my lands, I just spoke sarcastically to our Lord. Now, also the text here is telling us that they were in the upper room with the 11 apostles when Mary and the ladies showed up the first time and said, his body isn't there. They were there when Peter and John took off. They were there when Peter and John came back and said, listen, we didn't see his body. Uh, he's not there. Now, again, look back at the text. He said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now verse 30. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Beginning with all that, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So here's Jesus. He's sitting down and breaking bread with them, which, by the way, tells us this is a physical resurrection. He's got hands, he's got flesh, he's got blood, he's breaking bread, he's eating bread. And then I love the fact that once he takes the scales off their eyes, now he begins teaching them, beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament, covering all the prophets of, hey, this is who they spoke of, was me. 
But you see, what we see with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus is a crisis of discouragement, a crisis of discouragement. In the backdrop of the, of the crucifixion tragedy, these two men are having a crisis of discouragement. You know, when your expectations are wrong, you're disappointed. And that happens to anybody. You have a certain expectation, and it doesn't happen the way you think it's going to happen, or you don't get to go where you want it to go when you want it to go, or whatever it may be. You're disappointed. Well, how many times, if we're honest... We had a certain expectation, we were praying about it, and God didn't deliver the way we thought. We are disappointed by God. And again, it's not that God was somehow lacking, but rather it's our limited perspective. We feel as if God let us down. We thought that He would do something that He didn't do. We thought, hey, it wasn't, aren't I trusting in His promises? And it doesn't seem to be coming true. Didn't I pray in line with His will, but God didn't answer? God didn't come through as we hoped he would. And that's exactly where these two disciples were as they're walking the seven miles that Sunday from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They had been hoping that Jesus was the promised Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem. Notice that word, we were hoping. But their hopes had been dashed when the Jewish religious leader suddenly succeeded in crucifying Jesus. And they didn't understand why God had disappointed them. They're talking about these things. You know, and that's what people do when they're trying to process something. You've got to talk about it with somebody. You've got to get it out. That helps you to process what you're dealing with. But as they're having this discussion, Jesus catches up with them and says, Hey guys, what are you talking about? I overheard what you were saying. You know, I love how Jesus does evangelism. He just walks right up on these cats. Hey, I heard, as I was walking by, I heard you were saying something. Hey, can we talk about that? And so, the Bible tells us in verse 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, the passive voice of this verb suggests that God closed their eyes God hid from their eyes who Jesus was. And you've got to say, why would God do that? Well, as we'll see, he had some important lessons to teach them and us about trusting in his written word before he allowed them to see the living word who was there with them. And then, my friends, when we're going through a crisis of discouragement, the first thing that we must acknowledge, although we may not want to admit it, is that we all face times when we're disappointed. We all face times when we're disappointed, even with God. Maybe your expectation didn't meet His purpose. You know, twice in this chapter of Luke 24, it tells us that God decreed the death of Jesus Christ. God decreed it. He tells these two men, Jesus tells these two men, it was necessary for Christ to suffer these things. The angels reminded the women at the tomb that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Luke wants us to know that God is in charge of history. It is God moving it along His sovereign purpose. And this is especially true of the crucifixion tragedy, the greatest tragedy in human history. 
And let's be honest, it is hard when we have prayed and we've hoped for something that we thought was God's will when it doesn't happen. Oh man, we were praying that this virus wouldn't come, but it did. Oh, we were praying that it would go, but it didn't. They prayed, they hoped Jesus was the Messiah. No doubt they were thinking about political redemption, not redemption from sin. But that wasn't God's will for His Son at this time. And my friends, when your expectations don't match God's sovereign purpose, you are going to wrestle with disappointment. And I'm going to tell you, your disappointment may come because you've foolishly focused on part of His Word but not the whole of His Word. I'll say that again. You may be suffering, going through a crisis of disappointment because you foolishly focused on part of His Word and not the whole of His Word. Listen, these disciples in verse 26, they were quick to focus on the glories of Christ's kingdom, but they were slow to grasp the fact that suffering had to precede the glory. Oh, I can't wait to reign in glory with Jesus. Oh, okay, that's great. But understand, you've got to go through the suffering first. Everybody's naming and claiming, Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a future plan for you, say it the Lord, so on and so forth. Listen, check back five verses. Before they got that plan, before they got that promised blessing, they had to go through 70 years of captivity. So you want to name and claim that promise, fine, but realize you're going to go through suffering first. Though they rightly understood Jesus would redeem Israel, they didn't understand that redemption required offering himself as the Lamb of God. And Jesus said, you did not believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They believed some of it, but not all of it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in what? All the Scripture. Their fault was in focusing on parts of God's Word while ignoring other parts. And my friends, if we focus on part of God's Word, we're going to be disappointed when trials hit, and surely they will. Oh, I think we're living in the time of Matthew 24. I got news for you. If you think you're living in Matthew 24, wake up, Christian. Because Matthew 24 is the tribulation. The return of Christ in Matthew 25 is the return of Christ to earth. Not the rapture. You're not living in the tribulation. Christians think they got it oh so bad out there. Oh, they're not letting us worship. It stop you from worshiping. We can't get into our buildings, yeah, and Jews can't get into synagogues, Muslims can't get into their houses of worship. Nobody can get into their house of worship. And this isn't a case of having your rights taken away. It's called a national health crisis. Get a history book out. See what they did in 1918. Oh, you're not a year that old. That's right, you're not. But 1918, guess what? They closed theaters, they closed churches, they closed schools because they were dealing with a crisis. 
But again, Christians, we, 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 why would we think critically? Why think logically? We'd rather jump to conclusions and misread Scripture and misread this event in the Scripture where it don't belong. Get your nose in the book. The whole book. They were disappointed. We're disappointed because we're slow of heart to believe God's Word. And Jesus rebukes them for being slow of heart. Listen, I know it's hard to believe the, some of the Scriptures. Nobody wants to believe the hard parts of Scriptures that we've got to suffer. Blessed are those who suffer. You've got to take a little suffering. But my friends, if you don't see the whole Scripture, you're going to be disappointed when you suffer. Now let's go on to Luke 24, verse 10 and 11. Mark 24, 10 to 11. And Mark 16. Because there's a third crisis we have to deal with. The crucifixion tragedy produced a crisis of despair, a crisis of discouragement, and now a crisis of doubt. A crisis of doubt. And we're going to look at the upper room apostles. First in Luke 24, verse 10 to 11, and then Mark 16. Luke 24, verse 10 says, Now there they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Now look at Mark 16, verse 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Now we've got not a crisis of despair, not a crisis of discouragement. We've now got a full-blown crisis of doubt coming from the apostles themselves. And i got to tell you, Thomas wasn't the first doubting apostle. They all doubted. And the Gospels paint a somewhat unflattering portrait of these apostles. Listen, they knew these women by name. That's why Luke names them. Mary, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Salome, so on and so forth. These women had traveled with them, learned with them, they knew them by name, and they did not believe them. Great guys. They said, it's nonsense. Literally, that's an idle tale. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is used by medical doctors to describe someone babbling with a fevered or insane mind. You women are nuts. You're insane. You're babbling. So Peter and John, again, the women first came to the disciples, told them the tomb is empty. Peter and John are dispatched. They go. They look into the empty tomb. The Bible tells us that Peter went away marveling, but not yet believing. Then the Lord appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Sometime, now again, those two men had been in Jerusalem. 
They were there when Mary and the other women came and told the apostles, his body's not there. They were there when Peter and John came back and said, his body's not there. They were there when the women came back and said, he's risen. Now, keep that in mind, because remember, those two guys leave the upper room. They're heading to Emmaus. They're on a seven-mile journey to Emmaus. When Jesus meets them, they've heard the testimony of the women. They didn't believe the women either. They were doubted. They're discouraged. Now, after meeting Jesus, what did they do? They U-turned and headed back to Jerusalem. They burst into the room where the apostles were gathered. And according to Mark 16 and verse 12... They have told the two, he, those two reported what happened to them and they're meeting Jesus. And notice it says, but they did not believe them either. What's going on with these apostles? Well, they're probably thinking, oh, who's those women? We're the apostles. Why would he appear to them? And those guys are those two disciples. Why appear to them? Why not us? Why not Peter? Why not James? Why not John? Oh, they probably saw a vision or something. Now, sometime during that day, we know the Lord appeared to Peter and forgave and restored him. But these other apostles that are in this upper room, they're doubting. And then while they're still discussing all these strange happenings, while they're refusing to believe and they keep on being doubting and unbelieving, the Lord himself stands in their midst. He didn't open the door. He didn't knock at the door. He walked through the door. And he greets them with words of comfort. Peace. Shalom. And then he gently rebukes their doubts. And he offers them assurance to strengthen their faith. And verse 41 tells us, in of Luke 24, and they still could not believe it for joy. Here's Jesus standing there in their midst. Y'all get on Thomas. Oh, look, Thomas said, I've got to put my hand in his side. I want to touch him and see. They all said the same thing. It's too good to be true, but it was true. And then Jesus says in verse 38 of chapter 24 of Luke, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Notice what he said there. You're not just troubled. You're not just struggling. You're doubting. The Greek word for doubts refers to inward disputing. Because of our fallen human nature, we're all prone to doubt the things of God. Revealed to us in his word. My friends, you and I are responsible to control our thought life. God knows our every thought. We must seek to glorify him in our thoughts. Just as we would glorify him in our words and deeds. And if you're letting your thoughts life run rampant, you're going to be troubled. You're going to be battered with all kinds of doubts. You start buying in all this nonsense out there, all this conspiracy garbage out there, man, your head's going to be all sorts of places. But where it ought to be. Sound biblical thought results in sound biblical emotions. Don't fall into that trap of Satan. Indeed, has God said? 
Listen, they were emotionally, these apostles were all over the chart emotionally. Just before he appeared, they're saying, well, the Lord has risen. He's appeared to Simon. But then he appears and they're all frightened and they're doubting. Is it really him? And they're so filled with joy, it hinders their faith. They're on an emotional roller coaster. One minute they're excited, the next minute they're sad. One moment they're happy, the next minute they're miserable. And I think many Christians are living that way today. You know, when people talk to me about their troubles, I listen for feeling words. I used to feel so good, Pastor. I used to feel like Jesus was near. I don't feel that way anymore. Listen, you know what I hear there? You're living on feeling, not fact. You're living by feelings and not faith. Listen, good feelings are wonderful. God wants us to have them. But the foundation for our faith is not in our feelings, but in the facts of God's word concerning his son. Listen, your feelings, my feelings, they fluctuate. You know, who knows why one day you feel up and the next day you feel down. But you can't live your life on feelings. You've got to live by faith in the fact of God's unchanging word. No matter how you feel, you've got to trust in God. Why? Because he's resurrected. He's alive. He's not dead. He's risen. You see, my friends, we got three crises. Some of you are even struggling with those three. Maybe all three, maybe one of those three, maybe two of those three. But look at the crucifixion tragedy. But now look at the resurrection hope. We've got the hope of the resurrection. The news of the resurrection brought these people who were overwhelmed by despair and discouragement and doubt, and it brought them hope. Mary had a, and the women had a crisis of despair. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus had a crisis of discouragement. The apostles in the upper room had a crisis of doubt. They all believed in Jesus, but their belief was all at various stages. The women loved Jesus but did not believe his word that he would rise from the dead, where they wouldn't have brought the spices to embalm his body. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they loved Jesus too. But they only believed the parts that they wanted to believe and rejected the rest. And then those disciples, those apostles, oh boy. They scoffed at the testimony of these women and the other disciples. And when Jesus appeared and rebuked them and reminded of what he had said, then they believed. When he appeared to those two men on the road to Emmaus, then they believed. When he appeared to those women, then they believed. Each of these groups faced a different crisis in the midst of a great tragedy. Yet the power of the resurrection overcame their crisis and gave them hope. Has the resurrection of Jesus Christ overcome your crisis and given you hope? There are three lessons we need to take away. Number one, when tragedy strikes, don't forget the teachings of Scripture. Listen, three years, Jesus spent, time, spent a lot of time preparing them for what lay ahead. He spent hours instructing and preparing and warning them. And yet, they hit the delete button when the tragedy hit. Everything they learned went right out the window. It was only when the angels prodded them that restarted the women's memory that they started staring at the empty tomb and remembered. So when tragedy strikes, don't forget the teachings of Scripture. Secondly, 
When tragedy strikes, don't become blind to God's plan. When tragedy strikes, don't become blind to God's plan. We become blind to what God is doing in us and around us and through us and for us. They couldn't comprehend why would God allow Christ to die? 24 hours before his death, they were enjoying a meal, never comprehending that they were going to bury him. Where was God's plan in that? Surely God had forsaken them. This was a miscarriage of justice. God lost control. No, he didn't. The Son of Man must, must, must be delivered and be crucified and must on the third day rise again. It's part of God's plan. Current events don't take God by surprise. You may not be able to comprehend why God's allowing such a virulent virus to attack the world. I don't know either why, but I know this. God brings good out of evil. Look at Joseph. His old brothers, they sold him into slavery. Then our old Potiphar's wife, she lied about him, got him thrown in prison. Finally, he's out of prison. He's the second most powerful man in Egypt. And then his brothers come along. He reveals himself and he says, listen, man meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It may look evil to you, but God means it for good. He's bringing about this present result to preserve many people alive. You say, how can that be? Look at pe people, pastor, are dying. Yeah. How can that be, pastor? People are dying. <laughs> yeah. Life doesn't have to do just about living here and now. Life's talking about living here, there, and then in eternity. We have got tremendous opportunity of presenting the gospel. If there was ever a time when death is on everybody's mind, it's now. Preach the gospel. So as I said... When tragedy strikes, don't forget the teachings of Scripture. Take, go back, and start at the resurrection. When tragedy strikes, don't become blind to God's plan. Remember the resurrection. It was part of God's plan. They had to suffer to get to the blessing. And third, when tragedy strikes, don't forget that faith in the risen Christ brings hope. You know, to the ears of the disciple, the words of these women seem nonsensical. It's idle babble. It's not because they were unspiritual. It's because they were numb from tragedy. And in the face of tragedy, we tend to struggle with how faith in Jesus will help us through such times. But my friends, unless you personally have encountered the risen Jesus, you're never going to make sense out of any tragedy. And my friends, our mission as believers is not just to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No. Our mission is to introduce people to the risen Savior Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today. We've come to hear a word of hope in the midst of the tragedy that is facing us all. You don't need just information about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. And friend, if you're listening and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've got no hope. But if you'd come to that place of confessing and forsaking your sin, repenting of your sin... Placing your faith in Jesus Christ that He died and shed His blood to cover your sin. To make peace with God. That He was buried and three days and nights later He was resurrected. If you'd put your faith in that. And obey Him as your Lord. My friends, you'd be saved. And you'd have hope. So i got to work for my salvation? No, you don't have to work for your salvation at all. He did all the work. You simply got to receive the gift. How do I receive the gift? You got to repent of your sin, put your faith in Christ, submit to his lordship. See, that's what the Christian faith is all about, knowing Jesus personally. 
That's what the hope of the resurrection is, that you have a risen Savior. You serve a risen Savior. You have a Savior who loves you. You have a Savior who is alive, not dead, making intercession for you, going before the Father for you, and one day coming to receive you unto Himself. And that's why we are, a ga- we are gathered as a community of believers, whether it's here in this building, in your home, or via the Internet. We want to encounter Christ in the midst of a tragedy. And it may not be the tragedy of the crucifixion. It may be the current tragedy we're dealing with this virus. But regardless of whatever the tragedy may be, you may be going through a crisis of despair, discouragement, or doubt. But look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Understand God has a plan. And He's going to work that plan out. What does God have in it? He may have something in it for you. He may have something in it for me. But we need to be ready and say to the Lord, Here I am. Send me. Here am I. How do you want me to serve you, Lord? Let me give you those three things again. Don't forget the teachings of Scripture. Don't become blind to God's plan. And don't forget that faith in the risen Christ brings hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you that today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we celebrate that He is not dead, He's not here, but He's risen, He's alive, and He's coming again. And that inspires us, Father. That gives us hope that even in the darkest of times, there is a glimmer of light. The light of Your living Word, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each one listening to this message. Father, if there's some listening that don't know you don't as their father, don't know your son as their Lord and Savior, that, Father, today might be that day they'd bow the knee. Today might be that day they'd confess and repent of their sin. They'd place their faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Lord, they'd submit to him as the Lord of their life. Father, for those that are believers... Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they themselves are in a crisis. Maybe they're despairing. Maybe they're discouraged. Maybe they're even doubting. Their thoughts are all over the place. Lord, I pray that you get them to look at the resurrection. Use this day to get their focus back on your son where it needs to be. That they serve a risen Savior. That, Father, your plans are always at work. Yes, we may have to suffer first and foremost, but you'll work it out for your glory and our good. And we thank you for that. Help us to that end. And Father, help us take these truths to share them with those who are still suffering, who are still uh, having crises. Lord, I pray that you would transform each of us from discouragement to people, to men and women of courage, from despairing to contentment, and from doubt to conviction. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.